Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. If you're anything like me in the morning, you're running out the door with coffee in hand, but nothing to go with it. Hi, I'm Natalia, a pastry chef and the founder of Empowered Cookies. Our cookies are soft baked and pack seven grams of plant-based protein into one thick, moist cookie. Yes, I said it, moist. They're gluten-free, low-carb, diabetic-friendly, and vegan. I started this business to reunite all my female foodies with better-for-you versions of the cookies we all know and love. I want you to feel good, look good, and most importantly, enjoy what you eat. You can get 20% off your entire order plus free shipping using code YUM20. So go to empoweredcookie.com and drool over all six of our flavors. I suggest opting for a variety of our flavors with our best-selling variety six-pack for chocolate lovers. Enjoy! Greetings, friends. I'm Marijita Guerrera, and I am here with Rebecca Mackay to discuss her phenomenal new book. I have some questions for you. Rebecca is the author of The Great Believers, which was a finalist for both the Pulitzer and the National Book Award, and which did win numerous awards, including the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, the Stonewall Book Award, the Clark Award, and was my personal favorite book of 2018. She's also in The Borrower, The Hundred Year House, and the collection Music for Wartime. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We're here to talk about, I have some questions for you. Can you give us a little bit of a synopsis about this? Yeah, I've been calling it a literary feminist boarding school murder mystery, which is true. Basic story, our narrator is Bodie Kane. She's 40 years old in, in 2018 and is invited back for two weeks in the dead of winter to teach a couple of short classes at the boarding school that she had attended in the mid-90s as a adrift scholarship kid. And she's a film historian, so she's going to teach one class on film history, but she also has a film podcast. She's going to teach another class on podcasting. And while she's back on campus, her mind is, of course, back on the mid-90s when she was a student there, but particularly on the death of a young woman named Thalia Keith. Thalia died in their senior year. She and Bodhi had been roommates as juniors, although they weren't friends. And at the end of their senior year, Bodie was found dead in the campus pool with significant injuries to her body. Very I quickly. I mean to hmm? interrupt you here, but you just said Bodie was found dead. And she's narrating as a ghost. Amazing. I, at the end of their senior year, Thalia was found dead in the campus pool with significant injuries to her body. And very quickly, a young Black man named Omar Evans, who worked as an athletic trainer at the school, was arrested with what seemed like a mountain of evidence and has been in prison ever since. There are a lot of people online who actually believe he's innocent. When Bodhi returns, one of her podcasting students wants to do her project on the death of Thalia Keith. She also believes that Omar Evans is innocent and not giving much away here, but pretty soon Bodhi comes to agree that at least not everyone was investigated who should have been, and we go from there. Fantastic. Yeah, it's um, it really unfolds really well. The, the sort of the shell around this story is true crime as a genre. 
and consumption mm-hmm. of true crime. And the book asks again and again if there's any ethical consumption of true crime. It questions whose stories are worthy of being told and challenges who or how we feel ownership over these people's pain. Mm-hmm. What's your take on the ethics of true crime genre? <laughs> and do you think we can do better? <laughs> I mean, the book does not come down on, you know, this kind of true crime industrial complex being good or bad. Good and bad comes from it within the book as it does in real life. Yes, we can definitely do better. The best parts of the true crime media that's out there are, for instance, podcasts that cover cases with marginalized victims who don't tend to get airtime on network TV or covered in the newspapers. Or they are podcast websites doing innocence project work. Sometimes we've gotten things like podcasts that that put pictures up online and get Jane Doe's from the 1970s identified or get people to submit familial DNA if they lived in a certain area. So there are good things that happen. There's also, of course, harassment of suspects, re-victimizing of families, fetishization of dead young women. And then just even on the consumer side, this message that you're in constant danger if you listened to podcasts like this all the time. So it's all out there. It's also nothing new, really. All of human history, we've been interested in this kind of thing. But what's new is the media around it and the fact that you could spend all weekend doing nothing but reading about it and listening about one case, for better or worse. That, to me, means this is a you know an interesting topic. It contains contradictions. It's a good... I, Think of it as a tar pit, like that we can all muck around in together in this novel. And what the novel is doing is is taking the questions I already have and complicating them rather than attempting to answer them. Yeah. And true crime and the consumption of true crime isn't like a Manichaean dichotomy. There's not like a good or a bad approach to it. And I do like that the book itself doesn't seem to take a stand at all. You know, it allows the reader to remain neutral inside of that or to continue to have their own feelings about it or that might be one of the issues that the book does identify is that a lot of true crime, true crime coverage centers around white people and especially the yes. death or pain of white women and knowing that why did you decide to make a murdered white teenager the right the this is a, it's a really good question it's it's not something i did you know without great consideration basically the project of the book is to say okay let's look at the exact kind of murder that does capture the public imagination. And of course, this is fictional, right? So I'm not like, you know, taking an actual case and and not choosing another actual case. But, you know, you want to talk about young, beautiful, wealthy, white woman, you know, boarding school, the exact kind of thing that would make a murder clickbait, the exact kind of thing that would just feel like custom tailored for public obsession. Okay, let's take that and let's actually look at it through a realist lens. Let's actually talk about what that kind of attention, because what I wanted to do was find the case that would be the case. Let's talk about what that attention does to the investigation. Let's talk about what it does to the victim's family. Let's talk about what it does to the witnesses. And let's also talk about the underbelly of so much of the crime narrative, 
that we consume, which is wrongful incarceration, which which disproportionately affect Black men. So, you know, let's actually do that. And at the same time, acknowledge and, and discuss, you know, the way that this, you know, the reasons that this is the narrative that people obsess about and the problems with that. So it's, you know, and, and it's, there is conversation within the book. There's, you know, this, this young student who wants to do this podcast is talking about, okay, but you know, like if I do this case, what does that mean? But if I did a case, you know, as a white woman, if I, if I investigated a case about a murdered person of color, that would be problematic in different ways. And she's very confused about it, as I think all of us are about all of this. Yeah, she's a good avatar for the reader at that point in time, bringing up these different, complicated, conflicting feelings around yeah. looking into this case and, and covering this case and really getting immersed in it at the expense of another person's story. And, right. you know, th- this idea of like the, are we are we shedding light on something? Are we helping something? Is this a white savior complex? What is happening right. here? What's our motivation? With big kind of impossible issues that, that you know, the, the things that I'm stuck on in my writing of like, well, I can't do this, but I also can't do this. There's nothing that that works is to write about that conflict rather than trying to solve it. And so that's what I've done here. Yeah. You have Bodhi sort of have this dawning realization about the hell of the carceral system. A lot of the times when we talk about how cruel incarceration is or the, or the challenges around incarceration, we do think about sort of the bigger things. And she also thinks about the bigger things about Omar not having these birthdays, not having these times with his family, not having the life that he could have had. But then she has this moment where she's like, but it's also the myriad daily injustices and dehumanization. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times a day are you like, oh, I wanna, I'm hungry. I want to like snack on something. And like that's taken away from you. Or yeah. you wake up wrong and you strain something in your back and you can't just go to the chiropractor. All these yeah. sort of like, oh, okay. Like there's tremendous amount of mm-hmm. privilege in being the person that that walks around. Yeah. What motivated you to include that? Right. I mean, it's it's that realist lens again, right? Of like, you know, we we love these stories of, oh, they caught the guy and he's in prison. And that means we don't really have to think about him anymore. And, you know, whether this person, you know, is actually guilty or not, that is for for a lot of people, if they are not, if they do not have a loved one incarcerated, that is their idea of prison. It's the place where people go so you don't have to think about them anymore. And certainly, you know, Bodhi is someone who is interested in systemic injustice. She is, this is not something that is new to her as a thought, right? She's not going, wait a second, people might be mistreated in prison. But She's someone who, as a young person, was handed this narrative of, there was a mountain of evidence, they caught the guy, it's done. And although she certainly would be someone we know from her, you know, her systemic ways of thinking, who would, you know, in general, advocate for prison reform and and have this in a very general way on her mind, as so many of us do, would not have really thought about those day-by-day tiny moments. And once she, you know, she has this awakening, once she realizes, and for her, it is the fact that the wrong person is likely in prison. These things don't go away just because this person did commit a crime. That is, you know, there's there's still some, you know, a horrid reality there. But she actually is 
focusing on these details. It's something I wanted to get in there because I don't think enough people think about these things. I don't think enough people understand the reality, for instance, of someone being brought into court from a a prison a great distance away. They're given breakfast. They're brought to the court. They're often denied lunch by the bailiff. And they're returned to the prison after dinner service has ended and they are not allowed another meal. And this might go on for three weeks, one meal a day, one portion of cold breakfast, and this person's about to pass out in the courtroom. And if you're sitting there, you know, you're a true crime consumer or you're on the jury or whatever, and you're looking and going, that person looks guilty. He looks really woozy. Yeah, he's had 500 calories a day for the the past three weeks. There are people who know that. There are people who don't know that. There are people who maybe know it and then kind of forget about it. But it needed to be a big part of not not you know not the center of the book, but it needed to be a notable part of the book. No, it filled it filled it out in a way that made you be carried along with Bodhi's thought processes and like her realizations and her sort of like coming to understand her own privilege. I mean, one of the things that mm-hmm. I really appreciated too is that like her story and Omar's story kind of mirror each other in some ways. You know, they both had trauma as young people. Right. They both lost a parent. They both were sort of separated from their home. Right. But they go in totally different directions, you know, yeah. and she gets to become a successful person in her life, yeah. even though she has also has stumbling blocks like any other human does. But he's sort of just set on a shelf and put away, you know. Right. And yeah. and his 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 life is stood essentially not to be not to be punny about it but mm-hmm. yeah this book thematically among many other things is about the systems that were part of wittingly or unwittingly and bodhi is someone who felt like such an outsider because everyone feels like an outsider no one thinks they're part of those systems right but she's part of this boarding school even though she feels like an outsider there she's part of the institution of whiteness although she didn't choose to be she's part of the institution of the patriarchy, although she is a victim of it. Those are all things that, you know, you just are born into and need to be addressed. And so she's she is, you know, becoming aware of those throughout the book. I was also struck by sort of the um, complicitness that Bodhi has in it that we have as people in the patriarchy when we witness injustices against other people and we don't say anything either we don't feel we can or we aren't in a position to or we don't understand at the time. I mean, she's a teenager and there's the bingo card for Thalia Keith where the boys are trying to mark off if they had, you know, hands over the clothes, hands under the clothes, asked her on a date, these sorts of things. And no one speaks out about it. You know, and I remember being a teenager and not speaking out about stuff like that because I didn't know I was allowed to. Right. But you're witnessing it from the future again, you know. Yeah. I think so many of us have been looking back on our adolescence in the wake of Me Too and just, you know, modern lens and going, I wasn't okay with that, but I thought I had to pretend that I was. And I was right to be upset and it wasn't okay. And she's, yeah, but but again, it's, you know, you're part, you know, you you can be part of the same system that you also are or feel like a victim of. You can be part of a system you hate. And that's that's a lot of, you know, the the realization that she's going through. Like, there's so much I would love to talk with you about, but we're going to wrap up here. There's just one thing I wanted to say. There's so many great lines in this book, but Bodhi's husband, Jerome, delivers one that I think is probably going to be my life philosophy moving forward. 
when he messages, <laughs> seriously, when he messages her, stay away from Twitter, find a cute teacher to fuck, hope you're getting rest. Genius advice, really, for anybody, for anybody. I agree. I agree. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. Is there anything that you want to tell folks about, direct folks to that kind of thing where they can find your stuff online? Sure. You know, my handle just about everywhere is Rebecca Mackay, M-A-K-K-A-I. Helps to have an unusual name. And I have a Substack that's called SubMack, S-U-B-M-A-K-K. I do a lot of writing advice, book stuff, weird Zillow finds, all kinds of things on there. And I'm currently pretty actively on tour through June. So you can look at my events and see if I'm coming anywhere near you. Fantastic. I'm Marikita Guerrera, and you can find me on Instagram at, as always, friends, be well. Let me introduce you to an award-winning novel, The Moments Between Dreams by Judith Brunner. You'll be yanked to 1944 Chicago during and after World War II and the polio epidemic. Editorial reviewers are struck by the similarities to the world we all live in today. Follow a young mother, Carol, as she instills bravery and builds self-esteem into a child who is shunned for her limp. If you'd like to see how Carol secretly gains empowerment, yet teeters on losing her faith. If you'd like to watch a mother praise and raise her son to respect equality in women, despite his father who wants to keep everyone under his thumb, you'd like this novel. If you're up for a powerful read, take the journey in the moments between dreams to see how one woman who is trapped in a rough household must fling that door open and escape a demon. These moments of fear and courage still happen today per domestic violence victim advocates. You can pick up the moments between dreams in paperback as an ebook or audiobook at your favorite retailer or platform. It's a top pick by Shelf Unbound Magazine and won the Benjamin Franklin Award this month. Author Judith Brenner hopes all your moments between dreams are fantastic. Hi, everyone. I am Renee Powers, and today I am so thrilled to be sitting down with Bonnie Garmus, the author of Lessons in Chemistry, which is currently being adapted for television. Bonnie, welcome. Thank you, Renee. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. For those of you not in the loop of one of my favorite books of last year, can you (laughs) tell us a little bit about Lessons in Chemistry? Yeah, it's the story of a woman named Elizabeth Zott. It takes place in the late 50s, early 1960s. And she's a chemist, but she's not allowed to be a chemist because she's a woman, but also because during the story, she becomes pregnant and she's unwed. So she loses her job and she goes on to have a cooking show on TV, which sounds great, but that's not what she wants. She's a very reluctant TV show host. Instead of following directions, she decides to teach the women at home chemistry because chemistry is cooking and cooking is chemistry. But in doing so, she reminds women of their innate capability and ends up changing it. I absolutely love it. Elizabeth is a professional woman that just didn't take kindly to professional women in that era. And the essence of this character is that she wants to be taken seriously. She wants to do what she's passionate about on her own merits, not put in a box. And why do you think that that still, this is set in the 50s and 60s, why does that still resonate with readers? Sadly, it still resonates with readers. Yeah. We're still living it for some bizarre reason. Change is really slow to come to this arena of women's rights and women's equality. I'm not really sure why, but 
I wanted to take it from a scientific standpoint because science will tell you that these myths that women are less capable or less intelligent or whatever are completely false. And so we've been living under it for a very long time. And I wanted to write a story about a woman scientist who simply refuses to accept the everyday myths that we're all subjected to. Tell me a little bit about the research that you did for Elizabeth's character, especially around the domestic sciences. I'm sure you did a lot of research around chemistry, but I'm so curious how it was adapted for for audience. Well, you know, I did have to do quite a bit of research, and I did research that era of what women were doing, what they made for dinner, what they thought about. I didn't realize this when I started writing it, but that particular era was one of the most depressed eras in the history of the United States for women. They weren't allowed to have real jobs. They couldn't be productive except in the home. And then there they are. They're working 24 hours a day, and they're called average housewives. And no one takes their work seriously. It's not paid. And so when I was writing it, um, I looked at an, a lot of old advertisements that were just common. And I found this one where a woman is a rug like a bear rug, but she her head is on the floor and a guy's foot is on her head. So screwed up. I know. And it's just like, you know, make sure your rug is clean. I mean, it was just horrible, the connotation, everything. And these were so common about women having to be ready for their husband to waltz in the door and everything had to be perfect for him. But what about her? Have you read, one of our books of the month was Danielle Dreilinger's The Secret History of Home Economics. I haven't read that, but I want to. It is fantastic. And I I would see these two books as like the perfect fiction, nonfiction companion read because yeah. it dives into the, sci- the domestic sciences. It dives into all of the chemistry and all of the work that women in what we now think of as home economics put yeah. into making sure that people take the whole homemaking seriously, the science behind homemaking seriously. And what I love about lessons in chemistry is that is you just have to accept that as the premise to kind of get the book. There's there's no question there. I just I just I love that it's a book that takes home science seriously, even though it's yeah. not necessarily what Elizabeth wants to be doing. Exactly. You know, and I I liked writing that that here's a character who doesn't want to be doing this and finds herself to be in a club. Now she's the leader of that club, a club she never wanted to be part of. And now she finds herself having to apply her chemistry. She's the catalyst of the book. And everyone she touches, she changes them eventually. And I think, you know, the whole science behind the book is is actually true. We're ruled by the laws of chemistry far more than we're ruled by the laws of mankind. You know, it's humankind, rather. It's really astonishing to realize that. And I learned that from researching chemistry. So if you're not familiar with this book, in this conversation, we're talking a lot about science. But there is an irreverence to this book that I, I'm, it's like, when books don't take themselves too seriously, that is just like cat to me. And one of the things I love about Lessons in Chemistry is 630. <laughs> Oh, I'm Six, glad. 6.30 I'm so glad. is, and there are moments in this book that are told through 6.30's eyes. Mm-hmm. How did you get come to that decision? Well, it wasn't, you know, it just sort of happened. It wasn't really controlling. I don't really, I don't have much success controlling my own characters. But in terms of 6.30, it occurred to me when he started thinking on the page, I thought, oh, no, you know, magical realism. People won't like it. 
And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, animals, you know, when your dog, when you come home from work and your dog is there, you know, they're trying to tell you things they're thinking. And just because we can't understand what they say, they understand us. Who's the smarter species here? So I decided having a dog's point of view makes perfect sense because, in fact, they do have a point of view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love, and you know, as a dog parent, and I know you are as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's it's a fun thought experiment to think about what our what our dogs are thinking. Yeah, I give voice to my dog. What is your dog's name? His name, his full Christian name is Rudabega yeah. Butt Cheeks, but oh. we call him, <laughs> but we call him Rudy. <laughs> so, Lessons in Chemistry is currently filming the oh, television episode starring Brie Larson, which I think personally, I'm a big Brie Larson fan. You know what? It turns out you are absolutely correct. She brought everything she had to this role, and I just think the world of her. How much of a hand did you have in the adaptation? No, not very much. I wanted to, of course, as a neophyte, you know, screenwriter. Oh, come on. How hard could it be? <laughs> but actually, I think that I didn't get to do it because, as my agents and editors said, they said, no, you know, this book was signed before it's published. You're going to be so busy. And I said, doing what? I mean, it was so naive promotion. And they were absolutely right. There would have been no way I could have worked on it. And and so, and it's probably good because the writer must separate themselves because Hollywood has to change it. They are adapting it. They're not making a facsimile of it. And so it's, you know, it is painful. You have to just back away, but it's such a great team and we'll just see how it, how it turns out. So this was, the, the rights to it were purchased before it was even published or it was optioned? Yeah. Congratulations. Well, it was, so I was in auction with the Americans at that point. I'd already been purchased by the Brits and we were in auction with the Americans and then Hollywood started calling. And then before it was, you know, I had an American publisher, but before it was actually published in April, it already sold to Apple in January. Oh my yeah, goodness. Yeah, I know. It's bizarre. What, what has this whole experience been like? Yeah. What? It's been bizarre. It's really not my first novel. It's like, I call it novel 2.5. The rest didn't make it. Gotcha. Of course. Yeah. There were no survivors. But yeah, this is this is my my second and a half attempt. So yeah, you'd have you have to keep going. You're like, it's about damn time. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Boy, TikTok. I know. Getting in under the wire. It's really, it's really been great. But no, it's 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 been hard to actually get used to. To be perfectly honest, it's just a different life. I can imagine. I can't imagine, actually. I can only imagine. What are you most excited or most looking forward to with the screen adaptation? Well, it's such a different animal from what I'm doing. So I have gotten to see some of it. And it's really interesting because I thought I'd be afraid to see it. Instead, I feel like, oh, I'm a fresh viewer because it is different. But I think I'm looking forward to more people learning about Elizabeth Zott, to be honest. Yeah. And I think people are going to identify with her. Everything yeah. about her reluctant motherhood and yeah. her tangential career that she wasn't keen on to, yeah. you know, finally to overcoming odds that so many women and femme identified people have experienced. I think that people are going to see Elizabeth as one of our own. Exactly right. And, you know, like I said, I've seen Brie Larson it's hard work being an actress, and she really brought it all to this role. Yeah. She's one of those actors that just disappears into a role, no matter what she God, does. She, God, I mean, I just can't believe one moment she's very serious, 
and smart. The next moment, she's very sad and tragic. The next moment, she's laughing. And it really takes a lot to be able to handle a role like this, I think. Mm -hmm. And she really did an outstanding job. Lewis Pullman as well. He plays Calvin. I think there are a lot of really great actors in this. So I'm I'm very lucky. You know, I don't know how it will all turn out in the end, but I feel extremely lucky to have gotten this far. And what a gift of a role that you have written as well. There's so much to her. And I can only imagine how, you know, an actor looks at this character and goes, oh, I can't wait to dig into her. So I think that you have given, you've given us a gift, you've given actors a gift, you've given readers and viewers a gift. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you. I don't want to pressure you, but are you working on anything new right now that we can look forward to? Yeah, I am. I'm working on a new book. It has nothing to do with lessons in chemistry. And the the terrible thing is, I can't talk about it because I don't write from an outline. And every time I talk about it, then I take that part out and then People are going to go, you know, she said it was about X, but now it's, about, <laughs> you, know, you know, anyway, so now I don't talk about it. Is that how Lessons in Chemistry came to be, too? You just kind of wrote and let the characters go? Yeah, I mean, I felt like I knew Elizabeth Zott pretty well. I didn't know anybody else. And so they just kind of let them walk on and uh, and play play their part. You know, I don't like to base characters on people because I think that's really confining. I mean, I did base 630 on my dog Friday. But I did, I just can't do that with people because I know a person in a certain way and then I can't, I can't transform them. But if I make that person up, and for me, Elizabeth Zott was my role model. I was creating a role model for myself. Then I could, I could do, I could form her in any way I thought was right. And that's a lot of freedom as a writer. Mm. Mm-mm. That's so beautiful. I, I can't wait for this adaptation. Like I said, it was one of my favorite books of last year. What are you most proud of? Oh, okay. I will say the one thing that I did not see coming was the amount of reader interaction I have, which I really treasure. How many people from around the world write me every day and say, you know what? Today I changed my life because that's what Elizabeth Zott would have done. And so many people have done remarkable things because they were inspired by the book. And I really never thought, I never saw that happening. And it's really been a privilege to to be in these people's lives and hear what they've done. Well, we are coming down at the end of our time. This has been just a highlight of my personal career and my reading life. I have to ask, you know, we, we are a feminist book club. To me, it is so obvious that Lessons in Chemistry is a deeply feminist book. But My final question to you is, what do you think makes Lessons in Chemistry feminist? Well, I think, you know, for way too long, women have bought into, and some women are not feminists, obviously, women have bought into this idea that we're less capable somehow. You know, that men are a certain way and women are a certain way and all of that. All of that is false. There are other tribes in the world that have our situations reversed. You know, we're just operating under society as we've built it. We have to take a little more responsibility for this society and stop plugging ourselves into holes. So even when some of my friends will say, oh, well, you know how boys are, I'll say, you know what? Don't say that. (laughs) So yeah, I think we just have to be more mindful of this sort of thing, but also stand up for ourselves. We are 51% of this planet and, you know, we have a lot of work to do. We just need to make sure people don't prevent us from doing it. And if you have a book to recommend that's not one of your own, what would you like to recommend to our audience? I'm only going to recommend my own book. 
No, I, I, I'm reading a book right now. I really enjoy it. It's called In Memoriam by Alice Wynn. And it's a set in World War II. And it's about two men in love and they're in love during a war. And it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty tragic. So, but it's super well written. I admire her. Oh, we will put that in the show notes. We'll put all the information that you can find about lessons in chemistry in the show notes as well. Bonnie, this has been a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.